We have been going through the Gospel of Matthew the last several weeks and have slowed down a bit for the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, the Sermon on the Mount. So turn with me once again to Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at verse 6. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, page 958 in your pew Bible. 958. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Just recently, the Journal Royal Society of Medicine did a survey on Americans and decided that we are fatter than we think. Women apparently have a tendency of underestimating their weight, and men have a tendency of overestimating their height, which means... Uh, that Americans are a lot heavier than uh, we think. And according to the study, two-thirds of all Americans are obese. Now, I can kind of understand that maybe on a personal level. Living in the state of Minnesota, every winter I put on 10 pounds. My plan for the winter is eat like a pig and no exercise. And uh, the end result is, uh, yeah, a little extra flab. So this time of year... I've got to get serious about taking off the weight, exercising, eating uh, healthy, because it's just one of those inevitable struggles for me. I remember my mother warned me when I was little about uh, eating the right kinds of foods, and maybe didn't warn me about that, encouraged me to eat the right kinds of food, warned me about eating the foods that I craved. Uh, When I was little, I remember as my mother told me about the foods that were good for me, it was spinach. And cod liver oil, you don't give that to kids anymore, do you? But when I was a kid, cod liver oil, you know, was uh, was good for you. And liver, you know, those are the three foods that I heard the most about as a kid. To this day, I have no interest in liver, uh, and I certainly don't have any interest in cod liver oil. I'd much rather have a strawberry shake uh, than uh, than cod liver oil. I have developed a little bit of a taste for spinach. Uh, over the years, so I can please my mother in that one regard. But the truth of the matter is, I crave the foods that are bad for me. I love mashed potatoes and gravy. And, of course, if you're serious about your weight, uh, potatoes are not something you should be eating a lot of, if at all, if you're really trying to lose some weight. Gravy, too, is not particularly healthy for us. And I love bread, especially white bread. But, of course, you know, you're not supposed to be eating that if uh, you're trying to lose a little bit of weight. And as you think about the trouble that we have as Americans with our weight, obviously, we have the same kind of problem when it comes to the spiritual dimension. Now, it's not hard to prove that, because if you ask yourself in Madison Avenue, what is it that the Madison Avenue experts are convinced sells? Well, it's not righteousness. It's not godliness. It's sex and materialism. Now, can can you imagine Uh, that pleasures the perfume by Estee Lauder. Can you imagine uh, them saying, now, you need to buy pleasure, women, because it will make you appear godly to your man. Probably not going to hear that anytime soon. Our Jardash jeans, it seems like they continue to come up with new ways uh, to embarrass us in the way they uh, sell Jardash jeans. I can't imagine anytime soon that Jardash jeans are going to be advertised as the genes for those of us who are seeking righteousness. Probably not going to happen. Because those in Madison Avenue know that as Americans, we have a craving for what ultimately is not good for us. Uh, Sex 
and materialism and power. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, however, says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We come to a verse like this, and I have a problem as a communicator. Anytime you're addressing a theme that is not a felt need by your congregation, normally you would say you need a much longer introduction because people need to be convinced of the need if they don't feel it. And uh, everything I see in society today would convince me we don't come to church with a felt need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're hungering and thirsting for a whole lot of other things, but we're not hungering and thirsting uh, for righteousness. Let me try to raise the level of felt need a bit as we think about uh, Jesus' sermon. As you look at Jesus' sermon, uh, most expositors will observe that there seems to be a correlation between the first three Beatitudes and the last three Beatitudes. We start out with uh, this sermon where Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now, that's an internal thing. Now, if we are poor in spirit, what will be the result of that? Purity in heart, which, of course, is the fifth uh, beatitude. Uh, the second beatitude are blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we saw as we looked at that beatitude, in all likelihood, Jesus Christ is talking about the need for us to grieve our own sin, uh, to grieve the sin of others, and to grieve the effect of sin on society. Well, what happens if we're truly grieving and mourning for sin, our sin, the sin of others, the effect of sin? Well, we're going to be merciful to sinners, which, of course, is the sixth uh, beatitude. Uh, the third uh, beatitude, are blessed are the meek. Uh, and uh, we saw last week, as you think about that, the uh, word meekness, uh, as it is it's described for us in Psalm 37, uh, is the ability to not get uh, upset or angry or fret about evildoers. It's being the white stallion that has this strength, this emotional strength. But we've got our strength in control. We're not going to fly off and get all angry and upset uh, at people if we truly are meek and we're learning meekness. What would be the result of that? Well, you'd be a peacemaker. Now, what's sandwiched between these six Beatitudes is the fourth. And there are many, and I would agree with this, that the fourth Beatitude is the most important of all. Because as you look at this Beatitude, what is it that might keep us uh, from being poor in spirit? Well, we don't have a hunger for God. What is it that might keep us from uh, coming to the point where we're going to mourn sin? Well, we don't have God's attitude towards sin. What is it that's going to keep us from, from being meek? Well, the notion that everyone around me can just make me mad, whether it's drivers on the road or people in my family or people in church or people where I work. I don't have God's perspective about anger. So where's the starting point? Well, the starting point for any of us interested in a relationship with God is the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, if you've come here today hoping to meet Jesus, Beatitude number four is where you begin. So it behooves us to say, okay, now, if that's so foundational, if my relationship with Jesus is predicated upon my getting an understanding of what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness, well, how do I go about doing it? There are three psalms, the only other passage of Scripture that I'm aware of, uh, that talk about hungering and thirsting for God. This morning, I'd like to take you to those three passages uh, where it's uh, fleshed out for us what hungering and thirsting for God really is all about. Uh, the first passage is Psalm 42. So turn with me uh, in your Old Testaments to uh, about the middle of your Bible uh, to Psalm 42. 
This is page uh, 556 in your pew Bible, Psalm 42. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 begin what Old Testament scholars believe is book two of the Psalter. These are one psalm that were split for some reason, uh, but they uh, certainly belong uh, together. Uh, As we look at this psalm, we find out uh, that the psalmist begins by saying, as a deer pants for streams of water. The song we sang at the beginning of the service comes right directly from uh, this passage. So my, my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Uh, well, we continue on in this psalm. And we find out that the sons of Korah, who are the author of this song, are struggling. Uh, they're struggling in part because uh, they say they're in a place of waterfalls, verse 6, a place where there are mountains uh, uh, in uh, 6 and 7. And that's uh, not Jerusalem. As we try to figure out where are they when they're writing this psalm, uh, the best guess is they've gone south to Jordan where there were waterfalls and uh, mountains. And you say, well, why would these sons of Korah be down there? Uh, The best guess is that this psalm was written during the time when Absalom had chased David and those loyal to David out of Jerusalem. Uh, The sons of Korah uh, were the worship leaders. They were the Sam Rotmans and the John Carlsons of, of the church. And they were now gone. They were with David. And so as you understand the picture here, here are these worship leaders who have lost their jobs. They've lost their homes. They've lost the ability to lead the people of God in worship. Many of them would have left family members behind because not everybody left uh, with David. So they basically have lost all that would matter to them from a human perspective, at least. And so as they're writing this psalm, they're saying, Uh, They are longing for God. They're longing for the opportunity uh, to uh, lead others in worship. And it's not happening for them. Came across uh, this note this last week about mule deer in the Grand Canyon National Park. Some time ago, there were a couple dozen mule deer that had to be killed. Uh, The reason uh, for that uh, is that those of us who visit the Grand Canyon on occasion leave behind potato chips and cheese curls and candy. And the mule deer developed a, a hunger uh, for these bad foods. In fact, there was enough left behind that uh, this particular group of mule deer uh, decided that's all they're going to eat. And they stopped eating the kinds of food that was good for them, the vegetation that was uh, readily available uh, as well. The end result was that they became very skinny and very sickly. Uh, park rangers said uh, that this uh, fatty food was kind of like crack cocaine to these deer. They craved nothing else. And ultimately, uh, a couple dozen had to be exterminated because they're craving the wrong kind of food. Now, we can say for the uh, sons of Korah, that wasn't true for them. Uh, they uh, were in a very difficult spot and they let us know they are hungering and they're thirsting for God. I think we can understand that. All we have to do is go back to the events of 9-11 and say, what did the events of 9-11 do to America? Well, they drove us to our knees. That's what they did. Uh, there are more people coming out to prayer meetings after 9-11 than certainly there were before. Uh, there, were, there was a hunger to get to know God and ask God, why is this happening? What's going on? Help us, Lord, because we're fearful that there might be something else worse than this that might be coming. And we don't, we don't understand what's happening. And that's precisely what's happening with uh, the sons of Korah. Uh, They are humbled before God. They're trying to figure out what's happening. We see uh, in these uh, two Psalms, 42 and 43, they're asking some pretty serious questions of God, like, where are you, God? 
that are letting us know that their enemies are mocking them, saying, okay, you call yourself believers. Where's your God? He's not coming through for you. So they had to deal uh, with that. And so they were humbled as they were seeking God. He said, who are the sons of Korah? Well, I just said they're worship leaders. But the name Korah might uh, ring a bell for some of you. Uh, Korah was the individual back in Numbers chapter 16 that led a rebellion against Moses. Uh, He basically said, Moses, I'm as good as you. I can lead these people just as well as you can. You know, who died and made you king or leader of Israel, basically. I I can lead too. Well, Moses appealed uh, to God. And if you're familiar with the story, what happened is the earth literally opened up and swallowed up Korah and his descendants or not his descendants, the 250 people uh, that were associated with him at that time. And obviously there were some survivors from Korah's family that lived on. And these sons of Korah, some 18 generations later, uh, now were worshipers in David's court. But they had the bad name, sons of Korah. You know, you you don't want to be the son of Judas or uh, you know, the son of Benedict Arnold. Well, these were the uh, sons of Korah. And they woke up every day with that bad name, which might have uh, humbled them even at a time like this when they're facing crisis. Um, they could have easily prayed this prayer. Dear God. So far today, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm very thankful for that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. (laughs) And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. Amen. Well, they uh, certainly lived every day with a reminder that they had a famous ancestor who rebelled against God. But that begs the question that's really the heart of this message. What motivated their hunger for God? Well, first and foremost was their present problem. And as I mentioned, their present problem was that Absalom had revolted against his father and forced David and the sons of Korah and those loyal to him to to leave. In chapter 42, if you look at verse 3 and verse 9 and verse 10, there were ungodly men who said, we can see no evidence of the power of God in your life right now. And that had to be hard uh, for them uh, to hear, but they continued to persist in their faithfulness. Brooke Shields, the actress, was suffering from postpartum depression. And she said the only thing that got her through this time of difficulty was prayer. And she writes, I was always praying for my friends, not just when they were in dire straits. I pray for them specifically. I believe the more specific the prayer, the better. So stay in touch. Uh, That way my prayers are focused. Prayer for me is about the private, quiet plea for help. My friends know I pray for them. That's important. When I felt there was nothing I could do to help myself, knowing that I was prayed for was often the only thing that stood between me and despair. And uh, lest you think that these psalmists were not despairing, Notice the refrain that appears three times in these two psalms. In verse 5, Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet again praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. You see the exact same words in verse 11. And then in chapter 43 in verse 5, the exact same words again. And notice what the psalmist is saying. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Now, if you've come to this church uh, for any length of time, You've heard me make a comment on the Hebrew word uh, for soul, the word nephesh. 
Uh, as you look this up in a standard uh, Hebrew dictionary, you'll find out that nephesh means one's appetite, one's passion, one's sense of self, one's sense of identity. And you ask yourself, when I'm discouraged or depressed, what happens to me? I lose my appetite. Uh, I lose my sense of self. I lose my passion for life. Sometimes it might even be hard for me to get up and get out of bed and get going. Uh, it's just hard to stay motivated. So the psalmist is saying, why are you cast down, O oh, my soul, my, my appetite, myself, my sense of passion, my, my desire? And you say, well, duh, you just lost your job. You lost your home. You lost your family. You can't go to the temple and lead people in worship anymore. Of course you're going to be depressed. Three times he raises that question. Why are you cast down? Why are you cast down? Why are you cast down, O oh, my soul? Now, for some of us in the midst of our difficulty, that's the only question we have to raise. We can say, well, here are all the reasons. And then you focus on all the negative stuff. Notice what the psalmist did. Why are you cast down on my soul? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet again praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. You see what he's doing? He's saying I can focus my attention on all my problems. I don't have a home anymore. Don't have a job anymore. I can't lead people in worship anymore. I'm separated from some members of my family. Absalom has done this awful revolt, and David, our king, is no longer king. I mean, the world has fallen apart. He could have focused on that. And he said, the only way I'm going to get through this present crisis is to focus on my need and my desire for God. I shall yet again praise him, the help of my countenance. That is all my faces. That's what the Hebrew word means, uh, panin. Uh, is all my faces, my happy face, my sad face, you know, my, my gracious, all my faces. God, uh, show your faces to me is basically uh, what, he is, what he is saying. Uh, and I know I'm going to have my hope ultimately uh, resting uh, in you. Well, clearly that's foundational for us if we're going to have a hunger for God, knowing that when everything's falling apart, that's it. That's our option. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they are the ones who will ultimately be satisfied. Turn with me just a couple pages over to our second psalm, Psalm 63. This is now uh, the uh, other psalm that describes this hungering and thirsting for God. <clears throat> psalm 63, page 568, verse 1. Oh, my God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul. Again, passion, desire of self. Thirst for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and behold your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods with the singing of my mouth. Will I praise you? So, again, we find that the psalmist acknowledges uh, that they have seen God's glory, verse 2, that God's loving kindness, uh, his compassion, uh, his mercy is better than life, uh, verse 3. Many think that Psalm 63 uh, also is uh, written during the time when David was chased out of Jerusalem by his son. Certainly it's a time when uh, David is facing some serious difficulties. And he's crying out to God in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of the problems. Um, some of you know the name John Ortberg. He uh, was at Willow Creek for a number of years, the pastor of his own church now. He's written a book 
God is closer than you think. Uh, in his book, he tells uh, about a friend of his, Kim, uh, whose uh, father pulled off the side of the road uh, one day to help a woman change a flat tire. While I was lying under the car to uh, change the tire, there was another car that came along and swerved off the road and hit the car, knocked it off the jack. Uh, as the car fell off the jack, it severed the thumb on his hand. Uh, pierced, uh, there was uh, something from the car that pierced his lung, uh, and he fractured several uh, ribs in the process, and he wasn't even expected to live. The paramedics came, and they rushed him uh, to the hospital. And they were trying to figure out what they could do to save this man's life. Now, as uh, they were preparing these emergency procedures, all of a sudden, before they even got the oxygen on his face, he sat up in the bed and he invited the hospital staff to sing with him, Ferris, Lord Jesus. And so they all sang uh, Ferris, Lord Jesus, and he was able to declare that somehow, someway, God had done a miracle and he was healed. Now, I don't know about you. I hear a story like that and I think, you know, is that true? Is that true? Or is that like the sort of articles you read about at the checkout counter at the supermarket? You know, extraterrestrials playing third base for the Boston Red Sox, you know, and you pick that thing up. The reason I'm inclined to believe that it's true is that Kim's father was James Lauder, Dr. James Lauder, who taught at Princeton Theological Seminary for years and years and years. Uh, After this incident, uh, he was known as the weeping professor uh, because uh, until that time he was teaching theology, having obviously a warmness in his heart for God. Uh, But now after this incident, God was so real to him, so present with him, that anybody who saw him teach or heard him teach knew that here is a man uh, at a major institution who's met Jesus. And experience the power of Jesus at a time of critical need. That's what the psalmist in Psalm 63 is praying. Oh, dear God, help me meet you in the midst of uh, my crisis. Because I believe that your loving kindness, verse 3, is better than life itself. So verses 3 and 4, what is it that motivates this hunger for God in Psalm 63? Well, one thing is praising in the midst of trouble. You see the pattern here? Same thing we saw in Psalm 42 and 43. Uh, We can focus on all the problems. You lost your job. You lost your home. You lost what seems to matter. Or you can focus your attention on God, uh, that God is going to be faithful. Uh, The challenge for us when we're facing something difficult is that we forget the first song that we've likely learned as Christians. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me. So what happens when we've lost our job? Our family has fallen apart uh, or in the midst of some crisis. Uh, Chances are the first thing that happens is that uh, we relive uh, what the people of Israel said in Malachi chapter one. Remember what they said? God, you say that you loved us, but how in what way have you loved us? We don't see it. Can't believe that you love me, God, if you can allow me to be facing this crisis where I've lost my job and I've got this illness and my family has fallen apart. How can I believe that you love me? And the minute we stop believing that God loves us, well, then uh, we're going to go into the sewer thinking about all the stuff that's going to discourage us and depress us more. So the psalmist says in the midst of trouble, in the midst of trouble, 
I keep thinking about you. Erwin McManus uh, would probably be known better to our second uh, service audience. He's a, a young pastor who appeals to a lot of postmoderns these days. A very well-known pastor, got a great uh, church. He sent his son Aaron off to a, a church camp uh, one year with the hope and expectation that his son was going to have a wonderful experience at camp. He knew they were going to be around Christians, so they're not going to hear a bunch of ghost stories that were going to frighten him uh, at night. What he didn't count on is that as Aaron was at camp, uh, the camp directors decided that this year they're going to talk about demons, the reality of demons and the power of demons and uh, the ever presence of demons. And by the time Aaron got home from camp, he was so scared to death of demons. Uh, he said to his dad when he got home, uh, Daddy, will you stay in the room with me tonight? Will you leave the light on? Because I, I know there are demons all around me and they're, they're going to get me, Daddy, if you don't stay here. And then finally he said, Daddy, will you pray for me that I can be safe amidst all these demons? Now, Rowan McManus knew he couldn't uh, tell his son, well, there's no such thing as demons. Because as a pastor in an evangelical church, he knew uh, there were demons. So, you know, he couldn't say, well, don't worry about the demons. There are no such thing. But he didn't want to just say, let's pray that you'll be safe. So he looked at his young son. And he said, Aaron, uh, what I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray that you're going to be dangerous. You're going to be so dangerous to the demons that when the demons come into the room, they're going to want to flee because you're so dangerous. And then Aaron looked up at his daddy pleadingly said, well, then, daddy, can you pray that I will be very, very dangerous to the demons? Now, that's kind of the spirit of the psalmist here. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. I'm going to believe and hold on to that belief no matter what the troubles are that I see. Verse 6, in this psalm we find uh, that the psalmist is meditating on the night watches. When you're in the midst of uh, difficulty, you might find yourself waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat. And you're wondering, why am I waking up? Well, the reason you're waking up is because uh, you're facing crisis. I mean, that's what crises do to us. It's hard for us to sleep. Or you may find that uh, you can't even get to sleep. Because you're focusing on, on what's wrong. That's basically what the psalmist is saying here. I'm waking, waking up in these night watches. And what he's doing in the night watches, instead of thinking about all the problems, he's focusing his attention on the God who loves him. Oh, I, um, I can suggest that uh, in this day and age where we learn about kinesthetic uh, learners and visual learners and auditory learners, depending upon what kind of learner you are, you might try a variety of methods. If you're waking up in the middle of the night, you're more of a kinesthetic learner. What I found is uh, helpful for kinesthetic learners, you put on some Sam Rotman music. Listening to the soothing music of a Christian who's focusing your attention on Jesus Christ and you meditate on Jesus, that ought to be helpful. Uh, if you're an auditory learner, uh, I would suggest that you memorize a praise psalm. Not a lament, but a, a praise psalm. And hear those words of God encouraging you. Meditate on those words. If you're a visual learner, now you can still have the Sam Rotman music playing. You can uh, meditate on uh, the word of God. But create some pictures. Uh, as you're there fretting and worrying and being upset, picture Jesus in the room with you, holding you. Picture what heaven's going to be like. Picture where you were the last time you had a wonderful experience with Jesus and then meditate on that. Now, I found over the years 
that as I've encouraged people who are struggling at night before they go to bed or struggling in the middle of the night, uh, if they use uh, one of those uh, three methods, one of them is bound to work for you. And that's what this psalmist was doing, meditating on the night watches, singing for joy, verse 7, uh, they did in the midst of the difficulty. And finally, in verse 8 of uh, chapter 63, my soul, that is my passion, my appetite, myself, clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Uh, George Mueller, many of us know in this congregation, is known for his work with orphanages, but he's probably better known for his commitment to prayer. In 1844, November of 1844, he began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. He prayed every day, whether he was sick or not, whether he had too much on his schedule or not. Every single day, he prayed for these five individuals. After 18 months, one of them came to Jesus Christ. Five years later, the second one came to Jesus Christ. In the meantime, he's praying every single day for the conversion uh, of uh, these uh, five individuals. Six years later, the third one came to faith in Jesus Christ. After 36 years, he continued to pray for the other two, and they hadn't responded yet. But 51 years after he began that prayer to pray for those five individuals, the last two made a decision to come to Jesus Christ. And he prayed every day that he was alive. These uh, last two came to Christ, in fact, after he died and went home to be with Jesus. But every day that he was alive, he prayed faithfully uh, that God somehow, some way, would intervene in the heart and lives of those individuals. George Mueller, despite the discouragement that he could have felt, has taken so long, Lord. He continued uh, to cling to the resolute belief that there's a God in heaven who loves us and wants every one of us to enter into a relationship uh, with him. Now, that's the spirit of Psalm 63, it seems to me. One more passage I want you to look at. The third place where we see detailed in Scripture what it means for us to hunger and thirst for God is Psalm 143. So flip over a few more pages in your Bible uh, to Psalm 143. If in the first Psalm the focus is on uh, a passion for worship, the second Psalm a passion for God, the third Psalm uh, the emphasis is on answered prayer. If you look at verse 1, and verse 7 and verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, there's all allusions to answered prayer right, uh, for this psalm. So that's the emphasis here. The psalmist, David, again, is convinced that his God is a God who answers prayer. For several years now, we as a church have been involved in the Lighthouse Movement. That may not mean anything to you yet, but you've heard us talk about five for five. I uh, pray for non, five non-Christian friends, five minutes a day, five days a week, uh, with the conviction that as we pray, our prayers are going to make a difference. We're praying that God will give us opportunities uh, to develop a relationship with these five non-Christian friends. And if we don't have five friends, non-Christians, pray for the friends first that God will give me, you know, five non-Christian friends. And then once I have those friends, pray for opportunities to care for them, show some sort of compassion, help them out some, some way, and then ultimately look for the opportunity to share Christ with them. Well, there is another church that has made a well, many other churches, but there's a, a church that's made a commitment uh, to the Lighthouse Movement like us. Uh, and the pastor of the congregation uh, told his congregation that what I'd like us to do uh, is that in our local phone book, let's at random uh, pull out 80 names and let's start praying for those folks. Don't, don't know who they are. Uh, let's pray for these uh, 80 individuals on a regular basis over a period of 90 days. 
Now, in an effort to try to prove uh, to his uh, congregation uh, that prayer works. By the, by the way, if you want to find us, uh, Jay Dennis and Jim Henry have a book, Dangerous Intersections. That's where this uh, uh, illustration is found. Uh, but they then took out uh, another 80, uh, 80 names at random. And to prove the point that God answers prayer, the pastor said, we're not going to pray for these other 80. We'll just, we'll just set these aside for now. 90 days, we're going to pray for the first 80. The second 80, we'll just kind of put over here. Uh, after praying for 90 days uh, for the first uh, 80, then the pastor said, what I want us to do now is let's start calling both groups. And let's just ask if we could get together with these strangers and see if we can pray for them. Is something going on? We can pray for you. I mentioned this uh, before in South America, uh, in India, in many parts of Asia. The most effective means of evangelism is prayer evangelism. Getting together with friends and neighbors and people at work when they're facing a crisis, just saying, can I pray for you? And I've shared since our experience in India, uh, Joan and I have done that regularly in our neighborhood. Uh, Anytime somebody says they're facing some sort of crisis, you know, whether in the middle of the block or wherever we are, can I pray for you? And no one has ever said no to me. I mean, these are people, you can hear them cursing the name of God and, you know, they don't go to church and there's no significant interest in spirituality. But when you ask the question in a crisis, can I pray for you? No one's ever told me no. So that was the the point. You know, to ask these 80 strangers, uh, can we come by and just pray with you about whatever, whatever you want uh, prayer for? Of the people that were in the group of 80 for whom they did not pray, there was only one that said, you know, you can stop by and pray. In the group for whom they had prayed regularly over 90 days, 69 of those families who are strangers to the church said, oh, it would be great if you'd stop by the house and pray for us. In fact, several of them had lunches prepared, you know, for the members of the church as they stopped by and visited. They had a long list of prayer requests for some of them. I want you to pray for this and this and this. And the uh, point that the pastor was making, we have committed ourselves to this lighthouse movement. Foundational is the conviction that God answers prayer. Do we believe that or not? Now, the psalmist in Psalm 143 believed in answered prayer. He was committed to the fact that as we come before the God in heaven and we pray about what matters to him, uh, he's going to hear us as we pray. Now, why is it that God answers prayer? Verse 8. Uh, there are several reasons given, introduced by the word for or because uh, in your Bibles. First reason is because I trust. I'm trusting that God's going to answer prayer. Um, are we praying with a sense of expectancy about whatever it is that's before us, that we believe that the God of the universe will do the impossible still? Uh, and, you know, since the uh, publication of, of my book, I have had emails from people around the country regularly. Uh, it's, uh, it's been kind of exciting uh, to see the impact uh, that that's had in the hearts and lives of a lot of, a lot of folks. One of the things that I've also uh, found out uh, is that somehow the advice that I give uh, strangers, they're more readily willing to take. I don't know if it's because I've got this book now and I must be somebody, I'm, and I'm obviously not. But anyway, that's, uh, that's been uh, kind of interesting to me. But the challenge that people face still, if you're struggling with a marriage that is dead, uh, It's not so much the fact that your marriage is dead. The real struggle that you're facing if you're a Christian is that your God is dead. Because God tells us, I can do the impossible for you. And that's not for us as believers to say, do I I still believe that? Do I believe that there's a God in heaven who regularly in Scripture says, I can do what's impossible for you? 
Now, the temptations, we get caught up in our emotions and things are so hopeless and we feel so helpless. And I understand that. I've heard that from so many people. I don't want to be insensitive to those of you uh, who have uh, been there. But I also know the other side of it is the antidote to the sense of hopelessness and despair that we face in this society is a God in heaven who is all powerful and who tells us, I can still do the impossible for you. Just trust me. There was a, a widow in Africa uh, who had 56 or- orphans uh, that she kept in her little hut. I don't know how she got 56 orphans in a hut, but she had 56 orphans that she kept in her hut. Uh, one day she told the orphans, you know, get up and go around the outside of the hut. I want you to dig some holes. What are we digging holes for? We're digging holes for plants. But where are the plants? Well, I prayed and I believe that God is going to send someone uh, to bring us plants. Well, that very day, uh, there was an organization. Let me get the exact name. um, Dream for Africa that arrived in Swaziland. And you know what they're there for? To distribute plants to people in Swaziland. So they came to the hut of this little woman, you know, having plants that they were going to plant for her and noted all the holes all around the, the little hut. And they discovered here was a woman who, in faith, believing, trusted that God somehow was going to send somebody that very day with some plants uh, for her hut to feed those those orphans. She was trusting. Verse eight, a second reason given why uh, God answered prayer. For I lift my soul, my appetite, my passion, myself. I am turning to you, God, is uh, is the reason. And then uh, uh, verse 10, uh, another reason why God answered prayer is that the psalmist says, for thou art my God. It's always interesting to find out how uh, little kids hear the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes the language of the Lord's Prayer, particularly in the King James, is hard for kids uh, to grasp. There's a father, Jeff Newton of Lowell, Indiana, who was trying to teach his son the Lord's Prayer. And this is how his son said the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, I know you know my name. That's the attitude of the uh, psalmist here. And then verse 12, last reason in this uh, psalm why it is that God answered prayer. The psalmist says, because I am thy servant. Foundational principle of Scripture when it comes to prayer is that God doesn't answer every prayer request we ever make. Ask the Apostle Paul. He made a prayer request we can read about in the book of Romans. Uh, where he uh, asked God for some rest and relaxation. He wanted to be relieved from uh, the uh, folks that were persecuting him. He uh, hoped to get to Rome, have a little time off. Uh, And as we look at Paul's life, there wasn't a single one of those three requests that Paul made that was answered the way he prayed it. So God doesn't always answer the prayers exactly the way uh, we pray them. Uh, And it begs the question, well, why is that? What kind of prayers does God answer then? Well, how about this one? Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Make your name holy in my life. Thy will be done. God, I want to do your will. I want to be about your will. I want to be about your kingdom purpose. Thy kingdom come. I want the kingdom of God to come in my life. It's rather suggestive to me uh, that before Jesus says we should ever get around to praying, give us this day our daily bread. We pray those other three petitions. And those other three petitions are going to put us right in the heart of being a servant for God, saying, God, the reason why I am here is to be about your purpose, to be about your kingdom work, so that your name might be hallowed in my life. 
Some of you know the name Bruce Wilkinson, the author of the book, The Prayer of Jabez. Bruce Wilkinson tells a story about a time that he was on a tour and they went to the island of Patmos, which is the place where most New Testament scholars believe that John wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, as the people on the tour were going up to the cave where supposedly John wrote the book of Revelation, Bruce Wilkinson was feeling kind of homesick for his family. And so he just didn't feel like he could go up with the group. You know, he, he said, Lord, I, I, I need some kind of purpose today. I, I need you to show me that you're using me as your servant somehow, and I can make an eternal difference for somebody. Uh, so, God, direct me to somebody who needs you today. And then he went to a coffee shop, trusting that God somehow was going to direct him to somebody uh, in need. As he came to the coffee shop, he sat down to someone who was looking a little bit forlorn. He looked at the man and he said, so uh, what's the matter? And the man said, what do you mean, what's the matter? Well, just that, what's, uh, what's the matter? Well, with that, the man opened up and he said, I left my wife today. And uh, if I can get on that cruise ship, you know, the one that Bruce Wilkerson was on, I'm going to get on the cruise ship, go to an island where I can get on a plane, I can just get out of here. Uh, well, um, Bruce Wilkerson then looked at this man and he said, well, you know what? God sent me from Atlanta, Georgia today for the direct purpose to meet with you and to tell you about Jesus. And for the next hour, uh, he told that man about Jesus Christ and his love for him and what Jesus Christ could do if he gave his heart to Jesus. And at the end of the hour, uh, the man gave his life to Jesus Christ. And then Bruce Wilkinson said, and I believe something more. I believe that God wants to do something to touch your marriage. And in fact, what I'd like you to do is, is that believing a miracle for you as I am, I'd like you to come to the boat before the boat leaves in about an hour. Uh, and if you would just wave as an indication that God has got you and your wife back together again. And the man looked back at Bruce and he said, oh, that's never going to happen. Well, I believe that you're a miracle, said uh, Bruce. And I believe God brought me here for the reason uh, to challenge you in the miracle that God wants to do for you today. Uh, with that, you know, he went back to the boat and he got, you know, on the, you know, the back of the boat, kind of like a, you know, a sailor, you know, preparing to wave goodbye to family members as the boat's, you know, going out to, to sea. He's there waiting to see what's going to happen. And sure enough, just before the boat pulled off, here comes this couple waving both arms, you know, letting him know that in the space of an hour, God had done a miracle bringing that couple back. Jesus Christ, uh, in this middle beatitude, tells us foundational truth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Do you believe that today? It should be the reason any of us come to church, because we want to meet Jesus somehow. And the promise of God's Word is if you're here to meet Jesus, well, Jesus is here to meet you. Uh, he wants uh, nothing more than to satisfy the longing in your soul. If you're here because you have a thirst to understand, you know, God's way and God's direction in your life, well, I've got good news for you. That's exactly what God wants to satisfy for you. Uh, he wants you to know his word because through his word you can know him. Uh, if you're here today and you're saying, I I'm struggling because of this problem in my family, this problem at work, uh, I've lost my job and I'm struggling in some relationship. Well, Jesus Christ is saying you're in the right place today then. Uh, because what you need more than anything else is a hunger and a thirst for me. You come with that attitude. Well, I can promise you this. You will leave satisfied if that's really the desire of your heart. 
And I trust that as we close in prayer this morning, you'll tell Jesus where you really are. I wish I could take away the pain that we experience in the church. There are a number of times I can say, well, I wish it were always so easy that God could heal a marriage in a week or a day or an hour. I mean, I know I've seen him do that, too. At times it takes longer than that, a lot longer than sometimes I would hope. I wish I could just anoint people with the, the olive oil that I've got in my office that we use for anointing folks and say, well, just that quick, you know, we can solve all your problems. Uh, I know sometimes it happens that quickly. Sometimes it doesn't. But I do know this. Uh, that if uh, you're in the midst of something right now, Jesus Christ wants to meet you today. He wants to satisfy the longing in your heart. Would you bow with me now as we seek him? Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we like to hear the stories that Bruce Wilkinson shares about an hour you uh, intervening. Although the story of George Mueller being faithful and it taking 51 years to answer that prayer is an encouragement to us. We just don't like the idea of having to wait 51 years for you to answer some prayer. But God, today, I, I hope that as we end this service, each of us are convinced that the fundamental need that we have in our life spiritually is hungering and thirsting for you, no matter where we are, no matter what we're facing. And, and so, God, I pray now that you'll convince us that you want to meet us. And, Father, if through the course of the sermon and through listening to Sam Rotman play and through the other things that we've done in the service, we've not met you yet. If we've not sent your presence, God, don't let us leave the sanctuary until we experience you. Even now, touch our hearts. Give us that hope that comes by resting in you. Fathers, we think about that refrain that appears in Psalm 42 and 43. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet again praise him, the help of my countenance, my God. May we have that kind of attitude. Even though we can say there's plenty of reason for me to be discouraged and depressed, I'm still going to keep my focus on Jesus. Because I know today, Jesus wants to meet me. He wants to encourage me. He wants to help me. So Jesus, meet us at the point of our need. Continue to encourage us through the course of this day as we go to Sunday school classes, as we hear uh, Sam play this afternoon. As we come this evening to hear our seniors talk about what's happening in their lives, as we live our lives through this week, may we meet Jesus. In his name we pray.